Hey everyone, welcome to the second episode of The Great Weird North. So, just in case you missed the first episode, I just want to recap. So we're doing a podcast about Canadian true crime, hauntings, um, every all kinds of weird stuff that happens here. Uh, a lot of people don't know much about Canada, so I figured it'd be, I could only learn a little bit about my own country, but teach people about things that happen here as well. So today we have two stories for you. The first is the story of Robert Raymond Cook. And the second one is something I like to call the most Canadian crime ever. So we just have to wait and see about that one. All right, so we'll start with the first one. So this is the story of Robert Raymond Cook. Uh, He was born July 15th, 1937 in Hannah, Alberta. He was a Canadian mass murderer who murdered his family, including his father, Raymond, Raymond's wife, Daisy, and their five children, who were Robert's half-siblings, who were between the ages of three and nine. Uh, As a kid, many knew Robert as a kind and popular individual. He was mechanically inclined from a young age and learned how to drive a trailer truck before he was ten. His attraction to vehicles, mostly belonging to other people, landed him in jail numerous times. When he was nine, his mother died and he became rebellious, which at that age, most kids would. Uh, When he was 12, his father married his grade school teacher, Daisy May Gaspar. Apparently, he had a blatant disregard for the truth and the law. Quote, surrounding the murder of his family, there was a web of lies that could never quite be explained, at least not beyond the possibility of a doubt. End quote. So this case kind of jumps all over the place, so I'm going to just try and bear with me a bit. There's probably a couple things that will be repeated. So on June 28, 1959, police discovered Raymond Cook and the rest of his family shot and bludgeoned to death in the grease pit of their garage in Stetler, Alberta. The house was, the home was entered by someone. They shot this entire family, beat them, and then dragged them to a grease pit in their garage. So it was pretty, that's pretty brutal. It was described as the most gruesome mass murder in the province's history. Robert, the son, so Raymond's son, Robert had been released from prison days before the murders after having been charged with obtaining goods under false pretenses after he traded the family's car, which was a Chevrolet station wagon, for a 59 Impala convertible, which, I mean, was a pretty good trade. But... <laughs> Um, so he was released just a couple days before the murders. Robert was arrested for the murders, and despite being implicated in the deaths of the whole family, he was only charged with the murder of his father in order to speed up the trial process. So pretty much zero consequences for killing the rest of his family. Uh, Just after midnight on July 11th, 1959, Cook escaped from the Pinoca Mental Institution he was being held at, for psychiatric assessment after he had been after he had been denied permission to attend the funerals of his family that he had killed and was found four days later hiding on a pig farm near Bashaw, Bashaw, Alberta. Cook took the stand to describe his every movement in the days leading up to the murder to try and establish an alibi for himself. He said, quote, I went to the commercial hotel in Edmonton and I checked in. I got a car, stole it from a lot on the south side of the Calgary Trail, end quote. 
He then calmly detailed how he drove to Bowdoin near Red Deer, Alberta, to recover some money he had hidden there in 1957. He then drove back to Edmonton and returned the car to the same lot from which he had taken it. He then continued, just walked around, quote, because I had been locked up for two years, end quote. Cook's lawyer, Frank Dunn, then asked Cook to describe his relationship with his family, which he said was warm and friendly. He said his dad was a mechanic, and they were discussing a partnership. His dad wanted to open a garage in BC, and in exchange for $4,300, would sign over the title of the family's car that he ended up selling. Uh, Cook said he was going to use the station wagon as a down payment on the brand new convertible that he had his eye on. Cook said that his dad was handing over the paperwork for the station wagon. He asked for his driver's license as well because he had misplaced his. Um, His dad agreed and because they looked similar and Cook was named after his dad that he could have got away with using his dad's documents instead of his own. Cook further told the court that his family intended to pack up that very night on June 25th and go to BC while he headed to Edmonton to buy the Impala. He arrived back in Edmonton just after midnight, met up with friends, and had a few drinks. Later, he met up with another friend, Sonny Wilson, and both promptly broke into a dry cleaner's. Uh, it was during the night of June 25th that someone entered the Cook family's farmhouse, 200 kilometers from Edmonton, and shot and beat the family to death in their beds. The bodies were then dragged to a grease pit in the garage. The act was so savage that the bodies were almost unidentifiable. On June 26th in Edmonton, Cook traded the family station wagon for the Impala. The following Saturday, the RCMP apprehended Cook with his father's papers in his possession and charged him with obtaining goods under false pretenses. As part of a routine check and to advise the father of his son's actions, the RCMP visited the Cook family home the next day and made the gruesome discovery. Yeah, so crazy. (laughs) Okay, so they arrested Robert because he was the only member of the family missing and it took the... Okay, so the defense insisted that all the evidence was circumstantial. There were only two sets of fingerprints in the house, those of the mother and one of the children, yet seven people lived there. Furthermore, the RCMP estimated that the murders occurred at midnight, yet Cook was in Edmonton, 200 kilometers away, only nine minutes late, 90 minutes later. Dunn, um, so Raymond's lawyer, sorry, Robert's lawyer, also pointed out that it took four men two hours to remove the grizzly remains from the grease pits. How, then, would it be possible for one person to move all those bodies, clean the premises, and drive all the way to Edmonton in that short a time? Uh, He also asked, is it probable for one person to kill seven people and not have even one child escape? Uh, Crown Counsel J.W. Anderson cross-examined Cook and established that Cook lied to the car salesman. He questioned him as to why he would jeopardize his new freedom to commit a petty crime, Uh, so breaking into the dry cleaners, why his father would have no qualms about accepting stolen money, and why the entire family was going to pack that night, take public transit to BC, and but yet give him the family's car. 
So it makes no sense why his dad would have given him the family car if they were packing up to go to British Columbia that night. Crown Counsel J.W. Anderson. So Cook couldn't come up with any answers. Anderson continued to hammer away at him, insisting that it would be hard to look at garages to buy without a vehicle and asking how his father could travel without a wallet and ID. He also pointed out that Cook's father had promised a neighbor that he would help move furniture the next day. So if his dad was planning to do all these things, why would he have given his son their only mode of transportation at the time? It took two trials and just under 18 months for Cook to be convicted of the murder. The first trial was held in Red Deer, Alberta and presided over by Justice Peter Greshuk. He was found guilty by the verdict, but the verdict was appealed and a second trial was ordered by the Appellate Division because Justice Greshuk refused the testimony of one of the witnesses. So the Appellate Division is a section of the court that hears appeals. Um, the second trial lasted six days, but took the six-person jury only 32 minutes to reach a decision of guilty. The second trial was presided over by Justice Harold Riley. Justice Riley reminded the jury that the burden of proof lay with the Crown. He added that circumstantial evidence, in order to be conclusive, must complete a chain of facts or links that leads to beyond reasonable doubt. If a link is missing, he said, then the evidence is not valuable. The outcome of the trial left many questions unanswered. The actual time of the murder, the fact that the money was never found, and that one of the murder weapons, a shotgun, didn't belong to anyone in the household. So uh, Raymond, sorry, Robert Raymond Cook was found guilty. He became the last man to be hanged in Alberta before the death penalty was got rid of in Canada and he despite how scared people were of him most people that met him described him as quote a calm and gentle character who many thought incapable of the crime he had been executed for end quote so he was executed by hanging in the Fort Saskatchewan gallows on November 14th 1960 So before, while he was in prison awaiting awaiting execution, he wrote a poem. So I'll post the poem on my Facebook and Instagram. Um, He wrote it while he was in prison and it shows that he maintained his innocence right until the end. Like he said he was innocent right from the start. He maintained it right until the day he was hanged. The last verse of the poem it's, you can tell he maintained his innocence. It says, quote, I've heard of justice, but where can it be? I looked in the dictionary. Behold, there it is to see. When I sent for my lawyer, he just shook his head. Justice will only come long after you're dead. So people of the world take note. It's murder when the innocent die at the end of a rope. End quote. So yeah, the poem's pretty crazy. It he really shows that he thought he was innocent the whole time. So there is a book about this whole thing. It's called, it's by Jack P. Cover. It's called The Work of Justice, The Trials of Robert Raymond Cook, The Story of the Last Man Hanged in Alberta. So there is a book. So I got all the information for this story on Wikipedia and Murderpedia. So it's just 
lot of unanswered questions with this this one like why would his if he didn't do it why would his dad give him the car if his dad was planning on taking his family to British Columbia to start a business and if he was had promised the neighbor to help them move the next day there's no way he would have given them their car if that was their only method of transportation at the time also like if he did do it how did he do it there's how did one person drag seven people to the garage and clean everything up and have enough time to being be in Edmonton there's just there's a lot of weird things happening like I hope he was executed so I hope that he did do it just so that he wasn't executed for no reason they executed an innocent man that's terrible um so yeah that's the story of Robert Raymond Cook oh Alberta <laughs> okay so the next story that I referred to is the most Canadian crime ever is called the Great Canadian Maple Syrup Heist <laughs> so the informal name for a months-long theft between 2011 and 2012, so fairly recent, of nearly 3,000 tons, 9,571 barrels of maple syrup. This syrup was valued at 18.7 million Canadian dollars. The syrup was stolen from a storage facility in Quebec that was operated by the Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup Producers which I didn't even know was a thing, who represent 77% of the world's maple syrup supply. The syrup was stored in unmarked white metal barrels inspected only once a year. So, yeah, if anything happens, they're not going to know for an entire year. Thieves used trucks to transport the barrels to a remote sugar shack where they siphoned off the maple syrup, refilled the barrels with water, then returned them to the facility. The stolen syrup was trucked to the south, Vermont, and east, New Brunswick, where it was trafficked in many small batches to reduce suspicion. It was typically sold to legitimate syrup distributors who were unaware of its origin. So in fall 2012, the Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup Producers took annual inventory of the syrup barrels. So when they did this, Inspector... Inspector... Michel Gavreau started climbing up the barrels to check everything, and he nearly fell because he was expecting these barrels, these 600-pound barrels, 270 kilograms, but they were empty because they just stopped filling them with water. They got lazy. Uh, police later recovered hundreds of barrels of the syrup from an exporter based in Kedgewick, New Brunswick. Between the 18th and 20th of December 2012, Police arrested, police arrested 17 men related to the theft. Uh, the warehouse was owned by the wife of a man named Avic Karen, Karan, Karen, and Karen is the one considered to be the instigator of the operation. Other people involved were Richard Valieres, Valieres, who is known as a barrel roller in the maple industry. So he bought and sold syrup directly from Quebec, bypassing the Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup Producers. And Richard's father, Raymond Valeris, an out-of-province reseller named Etienne St. Pierre, 
and a truck driver named Sebastian Jutras were all involved with this, along with like 14 other people. So in April 2017, Richard Valeras, who received the worst sentence, got eight years in prison and a $9.4 million fine, with an extension to 14 years if the fine isn't paid. So if he doesn't pay $9.4 million, he has to spend an extra six years in prison. I don't know. I mean, if he hasn't wasn't having the worst time in prison, <laughs> I'd probably just stay there. Um, okay, so the theft was featured in the Netflix documentary series Dirty Money, uh, season one, so episode five, The Maple Syrup Heist. Canadian folk band Trent Severn wrote a song, Steel and Syrup, based on the heist for their 2016 album release. Uh, there was a television show called Elementary, alludes to the theft in season five. Um, in the episode that this is based on, the barrels are shown being brought by barge to a warehouse in New York, causing the di disappearance of a particular gang. The gang is merely hiding in plain sight, selling smuggled maple syrup rather than smuggled cocaine. So it was very loosely based on this real-life situation. The, there's a couple podcasts already that do an episode about this. So there's one podcast called Things I Learned Last Night by Jaron Myers and Tim Stone. And they overview the event and discuss the Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup Producers Reserves. It's subject of the do Go On podcast with Jess Perkins, Matt Stewart, and Dave Warnicky. And the show White Collar mentions the event in its fifth season. So it's mentioned quite a bit, actually, in, and I never heard of it before I started doing research for this. So it's kind of interesting to see that this stuff, like, it's so crazy. Who thought that maple syrup would be, $18.7 million of maple syrup would be stolen and no one notices for a year. It's just crazy. And the fact that they only get eight years in prison, <laughs> like the worst sentence is eight years in prison. It's just crazy. Okay, so I got the information for all this from history101.com slash the Great Canadian Maple Syrup Heist. So that is it for that story. So now I have three fun facts about Canada. So the first one is, Canada's lowest recorded temperature is as cold as Mars, which doesn't surprise me because it's damn cold here. <laughs> recorded on February 3rd, 1947 in Snag, Yukon, where the temperature hit negative 63 degrees Celsius. So that's negative 81.4 degrees Fahrenheit, which no, I would never leave my house. I would just bury myself in a pile of blankets. So fact number two, Canada's national parks are bigger than most countries. Wood Buffalo National Park, which is stretched through, it's in Alberta and the Northwest Territories, so it overlaps, is 44,807 square kilometers, which makes it bigger than Denmark and Sweden. And the third fact is, I mean, that's a huge park. <laughs> I want to go there just to see how expansive it is. Okay, the third fact is Toronto has the longest street in the world, which is Young Street. It's 1,896 kilometers, which is 1,178 miles. That's 
crazy. Like, yeah, I don't know. That's a very long road. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's still the longest street in the world. So for that to be in Toronto, that's pretty cool. Like, we have tallest building, longest street. <laughs> really cool stuff here that I'm sure we'll end up talking about. Um, I do want to do a story on the CN Tower because that's crazy. Like, people died building that thing. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at the Great Weird North Podcast. And you can send me an email at thegreatweirdnorth at gmail.com. And that is it for today. We'll have a new episode out next Thursday. So this one comes out July 15th, which I can't even believe we're halfway through July already. I feel like this year just started. Um, I'm going to try and get gonna try and get my husband to do a story with me next week see what he says um I think he would have fun with this but we'll see all right uh anyways thanks for listening and we'll see you next week